You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, many of you probably don't know, but I love to run. It's one of my favorite pastimes, and though I haven't been there in three years, I, I was the founder of our run club. Our run club meets now at 7.30 p.m. on the National Mall. On Sundays, I can't make it, but uh, I love running for a lot of reasons. Uh, but one of the best reasons I think that I like to, why I love to run is it clears my mind. It changes my mindset a little bit from the daily grind. It pulls me out of the other race that I'm always falling into, which is a race many of us fall into called the rat race of life. Up on the screen, you'll see a wonderful image I found on Google yesterday that just kind of makes me chuckle. Uh, All of these mice are on the way to nowhere, the Metro says. And I know that all the rats and all the mice that live in our beautiful city may be offended by the phrase, but the phrase rat race means an endless, self-defeating, or pointless pursuit. When we say, I'm in the rat race, it means we're in an exhausting, repetitive, often competitive lifestyle. There's not a lot of time to relax or to enjoy life. The picture is like we're a little human rat among many other little human rats, and we're all competing to earn a little reward, a reward that turns out ultimately to be vain, a little bit more money, a bit of a promotion, a little piece of cheese, we might say, at the end of the tunnel. Now this morning, if we're honest, a lot of us are in this rat race, not just in our jobs, but in everything, in our relationships, in our fun, in our social media, in everything. And if we're honest, we know that it's not good. We want out of the race, but we feel so drawn to the cheese, so addicted to running on that endless wheel. And so we often look for solutions. And our world has dozens of solutions. Here's just some typical ideas that I've discovered in how the world might say, We can get out of the rat race. To get out of the rat race, you can move, that is, from an urban area to a more rural area. You can retire, that is, you can stop working, you can quit your job, probably not a good idea for most of us. You can change jobs from a high-stress job to a more low-stress job. You can go from an analyst to selling coconuts on the beach. You can go remote, which is what many of us have done. We can work from home. You can become financially independent from your employer. So many of us wish that was the case. We can live in harmony with nature. Or, perhaps my favorite, we can adopt a Buddha-like mindset. That is an inner attitude of a detachment from materialistic pursuits. Now, all of those are ideas of how we can get out of the race, but a lot of these might not be possible. They might also not be God's will or his plan for your life necessarily. Also, if you move or change jobs, 
That doesn't necessarily mean your mentality changes. Uh, just because you don't want the best car anymore doesn't mean that you don't want your kids to have the best car someday. But this morning, what we're going to see is another solution. We're going to see God's solution. We're going to see Solomon's solution, which to get to the point about it, really is the main idea of Ecclesiastes and the main idea of this message. And it will be up on the screen, it's this. Life has meaning in God. That is, in life, we'll run. We're going to run a lot in this life, and that's a good thing. But as a believer, we're going to run different. We don't run for the reward as followers of Jesus. In the gospel, we already have our reward. Our worth doesn't come from our performance or being the first to the piece of pepper jack or Swiss cheese. It comes from knowing God, having Him in our lives. In Jesus Christ, we know God this morning. We know we're loved by Him. We're defined through Him. We're saved because of Him. Our reward is that His happiness is our happiness. We're free, and we live in light of how He's loved us. The point is, what we'll see this morning is we don't find our worth in our religiosity. We don't find our meaning in money or status, but we ultimately find it in our relationship to God. And when that happens, what we'll see, Solomon says, is everything else is colored in. All the other joys of life will come to life. Now, my outline is going to be up on the screen, and it's pretty straightforward, and it's this. The vanity of religiosity and the vanity of greed. We'll see the vanity of religiosity here in verses 1 through 7, and the vanity of greed in verses 8 through 20. If you're joining us for the first time, we are in a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're calling this series of messages Life Under the Sun. The phrase appears about 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it has to do with the perspective of the writer of this book, likely Solomon. Solomon's a king, and he's run hard after wisdom, after pleasure, after travel, after position, after love, after relationship, after knowledge, advancement. And because he's had power, a lot of it, he's been able to get a lot of those things. And yet, throughout this book, what we're going to find is Solomon keeps concluding. He keeps saying that all of life, relationships, travel, money, position, status, love, advancement, all of it is vain. It's all vanity. Now, the Hebrew word there means something like vapor, something like breath. Solomon's saying that all of this stuff is fleeting. It's like you, you breathe, you exhale on a cold day. You see your breath, and then it's gone. What he's trying to say is nothing is permanent, because one day, death takes it from us all. Now, this perspective, what we are discovering, is called life under the sun, and it means life in the physical world. Life viewed from an entirely human or earthly perspective. Life viewed from a mortal or a finite perspective. And as we read and hear Solomon, this perspective, as we've been noticing each week, seems a bit bleak. It seems a bit depressing. But as we continue to hear Solomon speak to us, 
what we discover is he's trying to show us something. He's trying to show us that if life under the sun is all that there is, then everything is just a breath. Everything is just temporary, transient. Everything ultimately would be meaningless. The world is just time plus chance plus matter. Nothing really matters. Nothing would be actually significant. But this isn't, as we hear and read the words of Ecclesiastes, this isn't where Solomon lands us. He doesn't think that's an option, that ultimately everything is worthless and doesn't have meaning. Instead, he says, look up. Look to the God who is above the sun. Look to the God who is over the sun. Look to the God who gives life. Look to the God who gives meaning and hope and salvation. And this morning, as we continue this wonderful book, we see our first point, the vanity of religiosity. Verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. So Solomon's saying here it's possible to relate to God with a rat race mentality, to come frantically into the presence of God, to come impatiently into the presence of God, to make it all about you. He's saying it's possible to go to church, but to forget the most obvious truths about God, like that he's the creator of everything, that he's the savior, that the story of life is all about him. And Solomon says that this kind of religion is vain. It's, it's filled with cliches, with platitudes. There's no substance. There's no weightiness behind it. A guy by the name of Langdon Gilkey wrote a book about how after he graduated in college in 1940, he went to China to teach English. He was basically a secular person. And when the Japanese overran that part of China, he was captured. He was captured with other Westerners, and they were all put into an internment camp. His first couple of months, he thought that since the camp was filled with educated Westerners, they'd all come together and they'd help each other out. You know, you've got the Brits, the, the French, the Americans, they'd all come together and they'd all come through. But what he started to realize over and over again was that everybody was selfish at the core. Like nobody wanted to share. People were cruel. Everybody was just trying to survive. So they'd steal, they'd lie, and so on and so on. And he says in his book, so did he. He writes that the educated people in the camp were like this. The non-educated people in the camp were like this. The non-religious people in the camp 
were like this. And so were the religious people. Except the religious people just use more colorful religious language. The missionaries and the priests inside the camp were just as bad, but they used morals to justify it. Pretty soon, all of this started shaking him out of his secularism. He started realizing people at their core were not good. They're sinful. They're self-interested. But then Gilkey says that in God's grace, during that realization, he met an Olympian that was imprisoned at that camp. His name was Eric Liddell, the movie Chariots of Fire. Eric was a runner. He won the 400. He won a gold in the 400, and he had become a missionary to China. And he was imprisoned as well during that takeover. And Gilkey says that Liddell was different from everybody else at the camp, especially the other missionaries. He says that Eric's faith was genuine. It was overflowing with joy and humor and selflessness. It was a weighty faith in contrast to the other missionaries. And ultimately, Gilkey says it was Eric who dies at the camp who eventually brings him to faith in Jesus Christ. But the other Christians there were a massive hurdle for him to come to faith. And he writes, in conclusion, religion is not the place where the problem of man's egotism is automatically solved. Rather, it is there that the ultimate battle between human pride and God's grace takes place. Human pride may win the battle, and then religion can and does become one more instrument of human sin. But if there the self does meet God in his grace and so surrenders to something beyond self-interest, then Christian faith can prove to be the needed and rare release from human self-concern. If you see religion as one more way to earn your salvation, your religion will, make you, will just make you as proud and selfish as everybody else, looking down your nose at other people, you know, filled with self-righteousness. But if you understand the grace of God, and it humbles you, and at the same time fills you up, makes you inwardly rich, you might become the kind of person that people need not only at internment camps, but in the whole world. The point is, it is possible to have a puffed-up, arrogant Christianity without substance, to be like the other missionaries in the camp. And it comes from this rat race mentality where nothing is secured, nothing is settled. But it's also possible to have a faith that's weighty and real, overflowing with joy, with selflessness, with conviction, knowing that God is God. Notice this passage reminds us of how we can be wise in our faith, how we can be wise churchgoers this morning, how we can look beyond the sun and above the sun as followers of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. In the Bible, walking is a metaphor for living. Our walk with God or our walk with Christ is our life with God, our life with Christ. The book of Proverbs says, walk in wisdom, not in folly. That is, live wisely, not foolishly. The idea here is that when we approach God, when we come to Him through Jesus Christ, whether that's together as a church collectively or that's privately, yes, we're loved, we're forgiven. Yes, through the gospel, God is our Father, but He still do our reverence deep respect. He's God. He's holy. He is other. This is God that we're dealing with this morning. 
and the weight of God as God should impact us. Verse 1, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So we see really two ideas here, draw near to listen and avoid the sacrifice of fools. Let's look at this first one, draw near to listen. I was sitting with a famous intellectual a few months back, and one of the things that he said that I loved was how important it is to listen to people. When we listen to people, we surrender a portion of our time in order to know them more. It involves yielding. We're saying to the other person we're listening to, you're worth my time. You're worth my attention. It validates their worth. It's why it's so life-giving to meet somebody who actually listens to you. In the same way, God has infinite worth. He's above the sun. He's the giver of life. He's worth our time. He's worth our attention, and he calls us to listen, to hear his voice through his word, through his providence, through circumstances. That doesn't mean he doesn't want to hear us, but it means we need to hear him more. The sacrifice of fools. Thirdly, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. The sacrifice of fools, of course, has to do with vain religiosity. It comes from, again, the rat race mentality. The idea here is someone who's offering a sacrifice, but doing it in a way to pay off God, to look good. Deep down inside, it's not for God, but it's for the cheese. It's for the cheddar cheese or the pepper jack cheese or the Swiss cheese. It's doing religious things, but being far from him. It's a reminder this morning that God doesn't just want head knowledge. He wants our hearts. He wants all of us. Religion without him is vain. In fact, it can be dangerous, verse 1. Verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. So this picks up where verse 1 left off, that in our relationship with God, we shouldn't be the one doing all the talking. Scottish pastor Alistair Begg says, God is not listening to us with earplugs as if we are talking to him with a microphone, but rather God is listening to us with a stethoscope. It means he knows our hearts. Another pastor, an English pastor, Charles Bridges adds, the fewness of words is not the main concern, but whether they be the words of the heart. My pastor in North Carolina always says this verse reminds him of the Run DMC song, You Talk Too Much. And the words are, you talk too much, you never shut up. I said, you talk too much, homeboy, you never shut up. The idea here is that God, it isn't that God doesn't want to hear us. It's that he just wants our words to be real to him. Pay your vow, verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Knowing that God is God, that God is real, and then not following through on it is the rat race mentality. It's the under-the-sun mentality. Jesus says, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Verse 7, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one 
you must fear. So Solomon ties it all together. He says lots of words, lots of focus on dreams and daydreams. It's all vanity. It's all a breath. But God is the one you must fear. To fear God means to know him as God, to have reverence for him as God, to know him as the one who is above the sun, who is holy, who is perfect, who is unique, the one who is totally pure. And we can know him like this by developing a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, the one who we have through boldness and confident access through his blood. We can have a faith that's weighty and real, overflowing with joy, with selflessness and conviction. It comes through knowing our reward isn't in religiosity, but in knowing him intimately, knowing him for real, finding our worth in him, not in our performance, but in his great love and grace to us. This passage continues, and Solomon now turns from the topic of religiosity to the topic of greed, which really leads us to our second point this morning, the vanity of greed. He starts off by talking about greed on the highest level, in power. Verse 8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. He says, injustice often comes from greedy corruption at the top. Solomon says, greed motivates them. And they're like a mafia, they're watching each other's back. Verse 9, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. That is, the people of a given nation tend to flourish when greed's not motivating things at the top. But then he goes on and he gives us some more general wisdom. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. So Solomon's saying here, it's possible to relate to money with a rat race mentality, to look at money and to try to be satisfied by it, to build our lives on making money, to forget that there's anything above the sun, to live completely under the sun. But Solomon says that this kind of pursuit is vain as well. It's a vapor. It's a breath. He says it leads to dissatisfaction, to restlessness, to loss, and to anger. In the classic book, The Canterbury Tales, some of us probably read this in high school, there's a tale called The Pardoner's Tale. And in the tale, the pardoner tells the story of three pretty lawless guys who go to search for death. Death meaning the guy with the skull face, the black robe, and the big sickle. They think if we can find death, we can 
kill him. So they're on their journey, and they meet this old man, and the old man tells them that death is found at the foot of an oak tree. So they run to the oak tree, but instead of finding death, they find tons and tons and tons of gold. The story goes on and says that they're really, really happy, so they decide they're going to sleep through the night and then leave the next morning with that gold. But first they decide they're going to do a toast. So the youngest of the three guys is sent to the town, and he decides to go get some food and drink. But he also decides he's going to buy some rat poison in order to kill the two other guys. He wants the gold for himself. So on the way back, he spikes the wine, and on the way back, what the young guy doesn't know is that the two other guys are plotting his death as well. Finally, the Young guy gets back from the town, and the two other guys eventually stab him to death. They get ready to celebrate. The two of them get ready to split their newfound treasure, and they pour the wine into their glasses, and they toast to victory and drink the poison and die. The story ends with the old man saying he was right. Death indeed was found under the tree. Now, just like that tale, Solomon here is explaining the dark side of greed. And his words here remind us of the dangers of greed. The point isn't to be poor. The point is that greed always leads to dissatisfaction. It always, reads, it always leads to restlessness and loss and anger. Verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. The idea there is that greed does not lead to gratification. Money can't buy joy. It can't buy love. When someone asked Rockefeller how much money was enough, he said just a little bit more. Verse 11, when goods or riches increase, they increase who eat them. That is other people, higher taxes. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The idea there is that greed makes a person restless. Someone who's not driven by greed isn't tossing and turning all night thinking about lawsuits or finances or profit and losses. They're just sleeping peacefully. Verse 13, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Verse 14, And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much, much vexation and sickness and anger. The idea here, of course, is lost. The illustration is about someone whose greed caused them to hoard. And then that hoarding led to a bad investment. The stinginess, we might say, eventually caught up with them. So Solomon's saying here, greed, accumulating wealth, being in the rat race, thinking that this life is all that there is, that's just all vanity. It's just a vapor. It's just a breath. But then he closes this section with a little bit of good news. Verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. 
for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. In other words, Solomon says here, the good life isn't just about more and more and more and more. He says the good life involves enjoying all of God's grace today. This is important because we can misread the book of Ecclesiastes and think that what he's saying is travel, money, position, status, career, love, they're worthless, so look to the resurrection. You can read this book like that. But what he's saying is that travel and money and relationships and position and career and love, they have value. But these things are not ultimate. He's saying that the problem isn't that marriage or relationships or money are fleeting and temporary because of death. He says the problem is the weight of expectation and longing that we invest in these things. The hope that we put into these things because it ultimately fades. Ecclesiastes says it's ultimately, it's only in the new creation, the next life, the continuation of life that's solid enough to bear the full weight of our longing and our hope. It's only when we see God in our hearts that we find rest and find our reward. It's only when we know him that everything else can finally be enjoyed and seen for what it really is. It's a great reminder this morning that God has given us people to love and things to use, not people to use and things to love. And it's a great reminder that if we're looking to money or relationships or family or a political party or anything else other than Jesus Christ to be our final hope and meaning, it will lead to dissatisfaction. It will lead to restlessness, to loss. But this morning, as we move to a time of the Lord's Supper, I want to remind us all that it's only in knowing Jesus Christ, coming home to God, that we can find salvation, that we can find deliverance from this world, from ourselves. Through Jesus, we can come home to God. We can trust him, the one who never uttered a false word, who never sinned with his words who wasn't greedy but gave himself up for others, who saw God and trusted him with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He can forgive us this morning. He can welcome us into eternal life, knowing him now and knowing him forever. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.